reading on the internet that a Florida man was arrested for physical assault of another man. Unlike many situations, this wasn't over an insult, it wasn't over destruction of property, it wasn't over a relationship or a marriage or a work dispute or even a football game. This man was charged with aggravated battery of his cousins because they had a dispute over almond milk. Apparently, his cousin said that whole milk was better than almond milk, and he proceeded to get into a large physical altercation with them that resulted in this man being sent to the hospital. The police who were on the scene were unable to confirm which variety of almond milk he preferred or if any milk was spilled on the premises, but they were confident that some crime took place. I think we can all agree that that's not an appropriate response to the situation. I work with kids, I've been serving at the local middle school. Kids just don't respond to situations in the way that they should sometimes. Sometimes you hear them arguing about something and they get upset and they want to punch someone or they want to get angry and throw a fit. You hear what they're arguing about and say, really? But adults do it too sometimes. Sometimes people get arrested over almond milk. How do you respond when you've been offended? Do you respond appropriately? How does God respond when he's been offended? How does God respond when he's been sinned against? We're talking this morning about the wrath of God. And when we talk about the attributes of God, and Tim did a good job mentioning some of these in Sunday school, we've asked God's holiness. We know that his holiness is what separates him from sin, his eternality or his eternal nature. That means that God has always been he always will be. We talk a lot about his love and his wisdom and his unchanging nature, but we don't like to talk about the wrath of God. We don't like the passages in the Old Testament that talk about the wrath of God, but yet it is an attribute of God. It is part of who God is, and we need to understand it correctly. What we've seen so far is that God calls us, when we have questions, to trust in his character, and to live faithfully. And most of our questions have been, is God going to do anything? How long is God going to watch wicked people prosper without doing something, without intervening? How do we trust God's word? Well, the question we have this morning is, how do we respond to the wrath of God? When people observe Christianity, when they read the Bible, this is always something that they run into. And I'll just be honest this morning, the passage that we're reading, verses 6 through 20, these aren't even the most descriptive or the, the harshest punishments that we see God deal out. There's some passages in Scripture that if you go to them, you really see the wrath of God on display, and you think, is that an appropriate response? Isn't that a little harsh? Think about Second uh, Samuel, when David is moving the ark, there's a man who's with them named, I believe, Uzziah, and the ark is being moved on a cart, which it wasn't supposed to be. Uzziah is just trying to stop it from falling. And when it almost falls against the ground, he touches it, and he immediately dies. Isn't that a little harsh? Isn't that a little over-the-top just from our understanding? You read the Old Testament. Read the book of Joshua and Judges. I mean, you see what is would be considered today genocide of whole people groups, just mass destruction of different cities. Is that an appropriate response from God? I think all of us would say yes, 
But why do we struggle with the wrath of God? And how do we understand God's wrath this morning? Well, one of the things I just want to establish from the outset is that God is not a vindictive bully. He's not just getting upset. He's not raging on people. But God always responds correctly. And why does he have wrath? Because he is a holy God. And when God, the holy God is met with sin and he's been sinned against, he must respond in wrath. We especially need to understand that in terms of the gospel. So there's some bad, I guess, theology and some understandings that say, well, God, because of Jesus, just overlooks your sin. That's not true. God did respond in wrath. But the good news of the gospel, and we'll talk about this at the end of our sermon, is that God's wrath did not come down on us. But God poured out his wrath on his son, Jesus Christ, who took on sin for us. Wrath is often defined as God's emotional response to wrong and injustice. We think of anger and vexation. But God's wrath is different. God's wrath is always holy and justified. How many of us can say we've gotten angry, we've unleashed our wrath on someone, and it just wasn't really justified? My dogs got me up at 2 in the morning the other night, Mac would not come inside. I can tell you, I had some unholy wrath for my dog. One of the things I was saying, in fact, there was one point, I just went to my bedroom and I said, he's just going to stay outside all night. It was raining, and my wife said, you can't leave him out there. I said, he won't come in. And I was just prepared to leave him out there, and she went out, and make sure he came back in. I did not have holy wrath towards my pet. And again, they're still for sale. Nobody's taking me up on that. But we see God's wrath in Scripture in the Old Testament as a response to sin and disobedience. And in the New Testament, we see it as a result of those who don't trust in Christ. What we understand as we read the New Testament, and it's foretold in the Old Testament, but we see it further explained, is that all of us are really under God's wrath because of sin. But those who experience God's wrath are those who do not trust in Christ as their Savior. Jerry Bridges says, we might say God's wrath is his justice and action, rendering to everyone is just due, which because of our sin is always judgment. It's not always easy for us to comprehend God's wrath, but it's a part of who he is. We can't ignore it. When we get to texts like these, we have to address it. So how do we respond to the wrath of God? Well, I think two different ways, we're going to emphasize these throughout the sermon this morning. We respond to God's wrath with repentance and trust. Every time in Scripture we see God's wrath on sin, we always want to turn to ourselves and not just be happy, hey, they're getting what's coming to them. No, we turn to ourselves and we say, is there sin I need to confess? Do I have a right relationship with God? How do I do with the sin that's being addressed? Because the wrath of God should put us on notice. There are times in Scripture where God exercises his wrath, and it is a sign to everyone else that God is a holy God, and he should not be sinned against. So in response to his wrath, we should repent of sin. We also should trust his character. When we see God's wrath on display, we'll see this this morning, we as Christians should turn and trust God's character. Even if it doesn't make sense, we have to say, God, we trust in who you are. We know that your wrath is part of your character. We can be thankful for God's 
justice, especially when there's injustice. So we'll look at God's wrath this morning and see how it's demonstrated against five different sins in the book of Habakkuk. Let's go ahead and look at chapter 2. We want to back up to verses 4 and 5 so we can understand in a couple weeks where Habakkuk has been. Habakkuk's had questions for God. He's in a wicked nation of Judah who's on the brink of destruction. When Habakkuk says, hey, Judah is really sinful and really wicked, God says, just wait, I'm going to use a nation even more wicked to destroy Judah. Habakkuk has more questions about that, especially how it coincides with the character of God. And in verse 2, we see God's answer. It says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not right within him. Who's that talking about? It's talking about the Babylonians. He says, but the righteous shall live by faith. What's interesting about verse 4 is it sets the outline for the rest of the book. Verses 6 through 20 are going to talk about the first part of verse 4. The Babylonians, whose soul is puffed up, it's not righteous within them. So what's going to happen to them because of their pride and because of their unrighteousness? Chapter 3 is then going to describe how the righteous live by faith. Then if we look at verse 5, we get a little bit of an introduction or a preview of what God's going to tell Habakkuk in verses 6 through 20. Behold, wine is a traitor. The Babylonians were known for being drunk. They were known for trying to get other people to be intoxicated as well. It says, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as shield. Like death, he never has enough. So just like there's thousands and thousands of people who would enter Sheol or hell, the same way the Babylonians were trying to gather all these people up. But what God is hinting at is it's going to lead to their destruction. Let's look at verse 6 now. We first want to see God's wrath against fraud. God's wrath against fraud. There's a lot of different ways I could label what's going on here. I specifically chose the word fraud for what we're about to see. Now, verse 6 sets up what God is going to say. It says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles? What is God talking about here? He's projecting into the future. He's predicting what is going to take place. Now, if you read books about the Old Testament books, a lot of them are going to say, well, this was written hundreds of years after these events happened. And why is that? Because in the Old Testament, God foretells events that will happen in the future. People want to say, well, there's no way Habakkuk could have known what was going to happen to Babylon. Well, he did. Why is that? Because God said it was going to happen. And so a couple hundred years before these events take place, maybe just a hundred years, God says, this is what's going to happen to Babylon. If you read Daniel chapter 5, these things happen. So God is foretelling something's going to happen. He's actually saying that the survivors of the Babylonian captivity, the people that the Babylonians took into captivity, are going to sing this song. They're going to take up this taunt song and this chant against them. So again, he's projecting into the future the survivors. People like Daniel or people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego taken into captivity who waited out those 70 years in captivity, or maybe even less than that for Babylon, and they see the end of it, and they see the destruction that is going to take place. And so this is what they say. They first start with 
this. It says, Woe to him who weeps up what is not his own for how long? Now, maybe you've seen this in the Bible before. What does the word woe mean? W-O-E. Well, it's a lament. It's a lament for judgment. It's a cry of lament. Sometimes it's for wrong done to a nation, and sometimes it's for judgment that is rightfully coming to a nation. We see it, especially in the minor prophets. It's called woe speech. And so here, what God is telling Habakkuk is these are the different judgments that are going to happen in the nation of Babylon. We see woe used five different times through five different sins that God is telling Habakkuk that Babylon is being judged for. So the first one that we see is it says, Woe to him who keeps up what is not his own. So he's hoarding almost. He's stealing. He's gathering things that don't belong to him. And there's a question at the end of it. It says, for how long? It reminds us of what Habakkuk says. How long are you going to watch these people sin and be wicked over and over and over again without doing something? And so God says, how long are these people going to steal what's not theirs? You know, the Babylonians, they were plundering people. They were taking these nations. They were gathering things that were not their own. Look at the next phrase that says, and loads himself with pledges. It's talking about here is getting people to commit money and material possessions for things that weren't going to earn them anything. It almost like it almost be like talking someone into credit card debt. Getting them to build up all this debt, you're getting nothing in return. In verse 7, will not your debtors suddenly arise? And those who await and those away will make you tremble, that you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of people shall plunder you. For the blood man and the violence to the earth, to the cities, and all who dwell in them. So Babylon has been stealing, they've been deceiving people, they've been taking from others, and God says in this first woe, there's going to be a time where they take from you. There's going to be a time where what you've been doing to others is going to be done to your own nation. Babylon had been deceitful. They had been violent. This was, as we'll see later, what was part of building their nation up. And one thing about the wrath of God that you notice is that it's a very ironic wrath. God remembers what these people have done. And in the same way, he will do those things to them. It's an encouragement to us for this. Sometimes we get frustrated with wickedness. Sometimes we get frustrated with fraud. We see lying and deceit and treachery in the financial world, in the workplace, and other areas. And sometimes we have that question, how long is this going to go on? Well, friends, God never forgets. He always responds appropriately in every act of judgment to remind us that God is holy and we are not. So as we read these three verses, we remember God and his wrath. We repent the times when we've lied, the times when we've stolen. We trust God and his character. Notice secondly, we see God's wrath against theft. God's wrath against theft. This is similar to what he says in verses 6 through 8, 
We're going to see it explained a little bit more here in verses 9 through 11. It says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. So the first phrase gives us the idea that this person's trying to earn money for his house. It'd almost be like trying to make himself secure. You know people like that who are obsessed with earning money because they think more money is going to make them more secure. And they're so afraid of becoming bankrupt or of losing money, so they're just trying to afford all of it. And that's that idea. They're building up this gain for their house. But notice it's called evil gain. They're committing evil practices. They're stealing from people. They're, like we said earlier, committing fraud. It says to set his nest on high. An interesting metaphor that God uses here, and it should remind us of an eagle or a vulture. Someone who has a nest high up and is gathering different things to build it up so that it's high and that it's safe. That's what's being emphasized here is the safety. We see that in the next phrase. To be saved from reach of harm. It's not bad to want to be secure. It's not bad to want to be protected. But the ends don't justify the means. These people were stealing. They were committing fraud. They were taking from others. They were committing evil gain to try to set themselves up to be secure. Notice what God says in verse 10. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many people. You have forfeited your life. The things that they were doing to be secure, to be safe, that were evil, are the things that would make them destroy, that would destroy them. Those things that they were trying to use for security would lead to their destruction. He said, you've devised shame for your house. You've forfeited your life. You see, that happens to some people. They're so obsessed with trying to be secure, with trying to hoard up all this money, that it turns to their backfire. Look at verse 11. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. The very things that they were trying to use to build the house are now testifying against them. This isn't the first time that we see an inanimate object in Scripture try to talk or give testimony. Turn back to Genesis chapter 4 for just a moment. Genesis chapter 4, we know this is right after Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3. Several years later, they have sons. Look at Genesis 4, verse 10. Actually, back up to verse 9. So we know this is the story of Cain killing Abel. But in verse 9, Cain tries to pretend like he doesn't know what he's done. It says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Notice how God responds in verse 10. And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. It's that personification. It's the inanimate blood talking and telling God this is what happened. We see that used here as well. The very materials they were trying to use to build the house are telling them that they were wicked. The walls and the stone and wood are all saying that they built this house wrong. You know that a house has to stand on a good foundation. If you have walls that are starting to shake and aren't secure, it's not going to last. And that's the idea here, too. 
that they're crying out, that they're starting to quiver and shake. And it shows us the foolishness of trying to build our security, put our trust in things that are evil. This is true of everyone who does not find their foundation in the Lord. This is true of the Babylonians. They put their trust in their military success. We're going to see later, they established themselves on violence. We see God do this to nation after nation. The Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, eventually the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. One thing always remains, those who don't put their trust in the Lord will be destroyed. We think about our country today, there's a lot of people with different opinions on how to fix our country, how to turn things around. You're watching any of the political news that's going on. There was a debate this week from the Republican candidate, presidential candidates. There's a lot of people talking about things that are going to fix our nation and turn it around. And we need to be careful. Our nation's not Israel or the new Israel. We're not God's people in that sense. But the principle stands that any nation that opposes the Lord will not last. If you look just at the direction of our nation, we see that we are getting further and further away from wanting to seek God. We see God's wrath against theft. Now look with me at verses 12 through 14. This is what I think the center of the passage is. We're going to see God's wrath against corruption. It says, Woe to him who built the town with blood, and who found the city on iniquity. God is expanding a little bit just from personal sins to now national sins. Babylonians, the Babylonian nation as a whole. The description here is of a house being built on blood. This clearly refers to violence and killing as the basis for a civilization. We know that they had a strong military. We know that people were afraid of it. It's what was making them powerful. But it's also what would lead to their destruction. God's telling them that they would collapse under their weight and oppression of what they've done. Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And again, not trying to take this verse out of context, but if you even look at our nation today, what we do each year, we kill thousands of babies in the womb. Abortion. We see that God will not stand for a nation built on violence and bloodshed. Which is something to remember. What's the punishment for this nation? It says, Behold, it is not is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire, and that nations weary themselves for nothing. I think God's judgment on them is so interesting here. He says they're working, they're trying to build themselves up, make themselves this great nation, but it is from God that they do all this work, they put all this effort into what they're doing, and at the end of the verse he says, it's all for nothing. The word he uses is vanity. We see that word used in the book of Ecclesiastes. Have you ever read Ecclesiastes? I wouldn't read it if you're feeling depressed or down, because it may not lift your spirits. Because Solomon says everything under the sun, everything in this life, 
is vanity. And vanity is like a vapor. It's grasping for the wind. Trying to chase after the wind. Have you ever seen a kid do that on the playground trying to chase the wind? Might help them out a little bit because they're a little confused. And Solomon says in Ecclesiastes that trying to pursue things that are vanity is exhausting. I'll put it this way. I've been subbing, like I said, at the local middle school. This last week I was trying to get caught up on grading for this class. And I put hours into trying to grade these writing assignments and record their progress. And for some reason, all my work just got erased. And I had to go back through, I had to read the writing again. Now, if you've ever read middle school writing, you don't want to read it the first time, let alone have to go back through and read it all again and give them new grades for it. And it was so frustrating because you feel like all that work that you've done doesn't matter. You just wasted your time. And so God says that is true of those who do not have him as their foundation. There's a lot of things that people want to fill their life with in our society. There's a lot of things that they go after to try to make them happy, to try to give them a feeling of satisfaction. But if it is not the things that help us know God, if it is not the things that God tells us to prioritize, it is vanity. Notice verse 14. I think this is such a great verse that God responds to the sin with. These people are trying to build their own city. They're trying to make themselves secure. They're trying to give themselves a good name. They wanted this empire to be well known. Look at verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge and glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. What does that mean? This isn't something that we should just, it's not a suggestion. God is not pointing back to, hey, you might just try making God's glory known. That's what God is talking about here, is that we should spend our time making him known, glorifying him here on earth. But it's not just a suggestion. What God is saying is there will be a day when the whole earth is full of his glory. When everyone knows that he is God. Knowledge is a big deal in the minor prophets. It's what God tells to Israel. He says, you don't know me. You might have an academic knowledge of who I am, but you don't have a personal relationship with me. My grandpa would go out to eat sometimes, and he'd see someone, and I noticed he'd always say, hey, good guy, and talk to him because that person would know who my grandpa was. And he'd turn around, and my grandpa would say, I don't remember who that guy is. And I noticed every time he didn't know who someone was, he said, hey, good guy, and kind of pat him on the back. The problem was, that was grandpa's nickname for me. He'd always come up to me and say, hey, good guy. So I was pretty sure that he'd forgotten who I was. And in the same way, God wants Israel to have a personal knowledge of who he is. More than just knowing facts about him, but it's to truly know God. Israel wasn't doing that for that reason. They were destroyed. But God says here, there will be a day when the earth is full of the glory and knowledge of God. That is going to happen. When is that going to happen? When Christ returns, when he builds his kingdom here on earth, the earth will know who God is. It says the nations will flock to him. 
They will want to know him personally. They will want to experience him. The earth will be full of God's glory. The question is, are you going to be part of that, or is your life going to be spent in vain? And there's a lot of things that we can obsess our lives with this morning. It can be trying to earn more money, trying to have fame, power, titles, relationships, pleasure. There's things that people seek after that leaves them in vain, that's worth nothing, that is not going to matter. And people dedicate their lives to it. There's a lot of good things that people spend their time doing sports and music and all these different things, and they're not bad things, and they're not bad hobbies. But friends, they make terrible gods. They make terrible idols of our worship. And when we put them on the throne of our heart above God, God says, this is vanity. And you know where it will lead you? It will lead you to where Solomon was. When he looks back on his life, he says, I have all this money, I have all this fame, I have all this power. He could have any woman he wanted to. He had a thousand wives. He could have any building, any city he wanted to. And Solomon says, it is a, an unhappy thing to be here on the earth. He gets to the end of his life, he says, I wish I could die. Because he had a life spent on living for himself and not living for the Lord. This is vanity. God is most concerned that we would know him, that we would establish our lives on knowing who he is, being concerned about him. So we see God's wrath on corruption. And the corruption was rooted in this. They did not know God. They did not have him as their foundation. Let's look fourthly, God's wrath against drunkenness. God's wrath against drunkenness. We see here in verse 15, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The little cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory. God's wrath against drunkenness. The Babylonian nation was known for drinking and becoming drunk and intoxicated. And not only that, they encouraged others to drink as well so they could take advantage of them, either financially, in military power, or even sexually. And that's what's being hinted here. The Babylonians are intoxicating people so that they can abuse them and take advantage of them. And it is sick and twisted. We see that God hates it. He hates their immorality. He hates their fill of this, and that they center their lives around it. Now, a lot of people tell me, well, the Bible never says that it's wrong to drink, or that drinking itself is a sin without being drunk. That may be true, but God hates drunkenness. And why is that? This is something we should spend a little bit of time thinking about. Why is drunkenness sin? So often we focus on the element itself. Is there anything wrong with alcohol in and of itself? Well, no, it has a lot of medicinal purposes, right? But it is the abuse of it. It is the image of it. It's the way that people get carried away with it. 
that is sinful. And there's so many other things where that applies as well. Is food wrong? No, food is not. We need food to survive, but the abuse of food, gluttony, devoting our lives to it, getting to the point where we're unhealthy because of it, is sinful. Is sex wrong? No, sex is ordained by God. It's a beautiful thing. But so many times it's perverted and it's abused and it's misused. But we see this happening with the Babylonians. They were getting people drunk. They were abusing them. And what God tells them is that they would be shamed because of that. You might say, how does this happen? How is this going to work? Well, read Daniel chapter 5. If you look at Daniel chapter 5, what were the Babylonians doing? They were drunk. They were having a big party. They were celebrating with King Belshazzar, and their drinking led to their downfall. The Persian Empire was entering the city, and they were able to take over without any military power at all, and it led to their destruction. Verse 17, the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. The destruction of the beast that terrified them. For the blood of man, the violence to the earth, to the cities, and all who dwell with them. God said the Babylonian nation had gone through the nation of Lebanon and destroyed all their trees and all their wildlife. We know that this is where Solomon got the lumber for the temple. And they'd gone through and just desecrated it. And so God, in response to that, says, I don't forget that, but you will have that done to you as well. We see God's wrath here against drunkenness. Finally, we want to look at God's wrath against idolatry. God's wrath against idolatry. Look at verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker is shaped in a metal image, a teacher wise, for its maker trusts in his own creation, when he makes speechless idols. This is the only woe, and this is the only judgment that doesn't start with a woe. That'll come in verse 19. But he does start talking about idolatry. And God asks the question, what prophet is an idol? What value does it have to you? It's not full of life. It can't tell you anything. He says it's been made by a creature. It's been made by a human. It has a maker who shaped it. We see this is an important concept for us to understand because we see it throughout Scripture. What leads to idolatry? What leads to this sin of putting someone else or something else where God should be on the throne of our heart? And we see it's this. It's when creatures start worshiping other created things rather than the, created, rather, rather than the creator God. What does Paul say in Romans? They worship the creature rather than the creator. We see that here as well. They're worshiping idols, things that they themselves made rather than the one who made them. So that the metal image, a teacher of lies, for the maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. They're worshiping things that they made. Why did God get so upset about the golden calf? Because man was trying to make God in their own image. And God says, you don't need to make an idol. God doesn't need to be bound in some kind of object, even if it's golden. 
God is full of life. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere. It says in verse 19, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. So God is really mocking them here. They say, you're talking to these idols, and you're saying, wake up. Can you teach? Can you do anything? But they can't because they're lifeless. And they are nothing in comparison to God. It says, behold, is it overlaid with gold and silver? God says, even if you dress it up and make it look nice, it has no power. There's no breath in it. So we get to verse 20. When we see these idols compared with God, these idols are worthless. They can't teach. They can't do anything. But God says the Lord is in his holy temple. God lives, period. He's in his temple. He's high above us. And he looks down on us. His holiness is what motivates his wrath. And it says, let all the earth keep silence before him. God is so living and powerful and holy and active that all of us before him are in silence. We're just shell shock. As we look at this last woe, this last judgment, we're reminded that we should live for God, not idols. I hope when no one's worshiping some kind of wooden object in their house, but are there things in your life that you put before the Lord? It's not wrong, like I said earlier, to be wealthy, but at the end of our lives, no one's going to care how much money we have. We won't do anything for our eternal destiny. Our power, our influence, our legacy, our lives are short. Our lives are not long. Even if you live to 100 years old like Norman Jamin, it's short in comparison to eternity. People idolize different things that may not be bad. But again, we should not put them in the place of God. If we consider the wrath of God this morning, we should repent of sin and trust in God. Sins of fraud and lying and deceitfulness, of theft and trust and security that does not come from God, of corruption, of drunkenness, of idolatry. Even if these sins weren't mentioned today, there may be things that we struggle with that God doesn't mention. But the wrath of God, seeing God's wrath in action, should cause us to repent of sin, but then finally to trust in Him. People who trust in God find their dependence on Him. They don't feel like they need to steal or lie or deceive others. They don't put other things before God because they are focused on Him alone. They worship Him. As we conclude this morning, rather than giving a list of application points, I want us to think of the wrath of God and think about this. Who is the person who experienced the full wrath of God in His time here on earth? I'm not talking about people who have died, they're experiencing God's wrath of hell, but who experienced the full wrath of God here on earth? And friends, that person is Jesus Christ. He humbled himself, he took on flesh, but it wasn't just so that he could talk with us and do miracles, he did those things. It wasn't just so he could teach us, even though he taught us. It wasn't just so that 
he could show off in any way, but Christ took on flesh so that he could bear our sin on the cross and take on God's full wrath. Jesus Christ took on the wrath of God. I love the song in Christ alone. And there's one verse that says, when on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Amen? And that theology teaches us that Jesus didn't die to appease God's wrath. Some people say it's to appease Satan's wrath. That somehow Jesus was a payment to Satan. We need to be careful of that. It is not the gospel. The gospel tells us that you and I sin against the holy God. We're separated from God, and we deserve God's wrath. God's not going to overlook our sin. God's not going to say, hey, you can get on by. We deserve the wrath of God. And the Hebrew law system, sin had to be paid for with the shedding of blood. So who is the person who took on the wrath of God? It's Christ. He absorbed God's wrath. Consider these verses that I put on the screen. Isaiah 53.10 Yet it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. This was God's plan. To crush his son Jesus Christ as he absorbs the wrath of God. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming cursed for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. We escape God's wrath. We escape the curse of the law, which tells us we deserve God's wrath because Christ became a curse for us. 1 Peter 2, 23-24, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. So we close, I want to read this quote from R.C. Sproul, which says, the most violent expression of God's wrath and justice is seen on the cross. If ever a person had room to complain for injustice, it was Jesus. He was the only innocent man to ever be punished by God. If we stagger at the wrath of God, but us stagger at the cross. Here is where our astonishment should be focused. So as we close this morning, there are passages in Scripture that are constantly see God's wrath, and it makes us feel uncomfortable. There are passages that are even more descriptive and violent than what we read today. But each time we do, we should repent of our sin, we should trust in the character of God, and we should remember Jesus, who took on God's wrath for us, and know that we can have salvation by trusting in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it reveals to us. And sometimes it is challenging. Sometimes it tells us things that we don't want to hear. But we're thankful that not only are you a God of wrath, you're a God of mercy as well. You've sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. And we trust that this morning. I pray that all of us would know your son, Jesus Christ, the Savior, so that we do not experience your wrath, that we know your mercy and grace. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.